Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad One Zero. Hey there, leaders, and welcome back to another episode of Leaders of B2B. Today, super excited to have Chris Walker from Refine Labs here on the show. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Jake, pumped to be here, man. Looking forward to chatting with you today. Definitely. Uh, excited to have you on here. Uh, as I mentioned, you are a legend within our company for uh, the, the amazing content you put out. And um, I'm, I'm excited to dive into your journey a bit. But for anyone on the show who doesn't know who you are or what Refine Labs is, can you maybe give us that 90-second overview of uh, what is Refine Labs? What do you guys do? Sure. So I'm going to start a little bit with my background because I think that it's interesting. And so been in B2B for the past 10 years, ever since I got out of college and then took some, I had several side hustles when I was younger, where I was building e-commerce stores out of my bedroom and grew those things to several six figures and learned a lot about organic marketing, social marketing, advertising, customer acquisition costs, things like that. And then moved into venture funded companies where I started to apply those types of methodologies specifically on looking and marketing at the lens of revenue versus leads, which is a really interesting thing because the sales motion that happens between the lead and after that is something I think that a lot of uh, a lot of marketers miss sometimes, especially in B2B. Now, um, what we do at Refine Labs is that we... We help companies transform their demand generation programs, leveraging some of those insights and a core model that I built at a company called Vapotherm that focuses on driving pipeline and revenue by focusing on high intent leads that ask to create a task to, to get a demo for to talk to your sales team versus low intent leads that download ebooks or different things like that. And so just changing the mindset on volume of leads, focusing more on late stage funnel metrics that matter to the business and focusing on customer acquisition costs and cost per SQO as opposed to cost per lead um, are some of the things that we help companies do. That's amazing. And, and so I'm very curious to understand, you know, I guess, wh what does that playbook look like whenever you come into a company um, and you're, you're looking to do demand generation for a company that's trying to hit these growth targets? You know, how do you guys look at that? Um, what is a typical rollout? Is it custom for each client? Do you have a handful of approaches you guys go with or what does that look like? Yeah. So before we do this, I want to just be clear on the types of companies that we do work for, because the things that I'm about to say do not apply to every type of company. And so we work with companies that sell typically recurring revenue model software from $15,000 a year to a quarter million or more. The key inside of that is that it's not product led. It's not 
transactional. There's a complex buying process with multiple stakeholders that takes somewhere between 30 or more days to close. And it's not super enterprise where you're just selling to, you need to sell to 50 companies that are going to be worth $10 million a year. It's in the middle where you have a large total addressable market and velocity deal sizes where it's going to be pretty tough to make an outbound model work and scale at 15K ACV from a customer acquisition cost and scalability perspective. And performance marketing at that ACV range will fail when you measure it against customer acquisition costs. And so we have this space in the middle where we're highly differentiated and the model works better than what's happening right now. And so what we do and what we have is we have a core mix. The core mix gets updated on an ongoing basis. So think about it sort of like the the menu, right? So there's a playbook that we have on paid search. There's a playbook that we have on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and email and conversion rate optimization and funnel optimization and lead handoff optimization. We have a core mix. Um, those types of things, when one thing isn't working anymore, we're going to get rid of it. I don't care whether or not it's something that we do. It's just whether does it work right now or not. And so if it's not working, then we're going to throw it out of the mix. Or if it's something that we've innovated and figured out a specific way to do LinkedIn ads better, which we did last Monday, then we validate that one with one customer, then run tests across all of our customers to see if it works. And if it works across all of our customers with consistent results, then we add that to the core mix. So the core mix is always evolving, but it heavily relies on core digital paid execution across four or five social channels. And then from there, we advise on strategies from an organic standpoint that are difficult to monetize in a consulting model. So advise on how to do an event strategy, how to do a podcast like what we're doing right now, how to have influencer build influencer marketing into your mix, how to do email marketing better, how to create content, how to um, message your product based on the feedback that we're getting through the media execution that we're doing highly targeted. And so all those different things we help because in the end, which is rare for a company like mine, we are centered on delivering qualified pipeline and revenue at the in the most efficient way for our customers. And so it doesn't matter what tactics, we're not married to specific tactics, we're married on what is the best outcome. And so that's where we advise on. And then lastly, we try and create in a space over the, the first six months is building that core mix. After those six months, the goal is to create space for our very smart people to run experiments that nobody's run here to go and try and do things that are new and innovative, which in my experience, what I found is that a lot of marketers inside of B2B companies can't do those things because they get prevented by metrics or no budget, or I don't believe in Facebook ads. The CEO would say something like that, or they only give it a week to work and some strategies take months to work. And so we have the space to actually do innovation, which I do believe will be our long-term positioning in companies as I continue to interact with more and more of them about how much innovation gets stunted inside of marketing departments, which frankly is one of the reasons why I created this company is that I couldn't find a lot of, uh, I couldn't find any company to be an employee that would let me do marketing exactly how I wanted. That's super fascinating. Um, and, and it is interesting where I think I, I totally see this where, I mean, marketing, it's, it's ironic that you say that there's not okay. a lot of room for uh, a lot of companies don't make room for innovation. Cause I feel like if anything, marketing is one of the channels that just changes fastest Mm -hmm. out there where if you are innovating and you're on the cutting edge, uh, you can ride trends that, as everyone says, like marketers ruin everything. It's like if you were on the front end of LinkedIn outreach, you could have made done amazing. And now it's super mm -hmm. noisy. It's a lot harder and everything. And 
Um, so how do you guys think about that from that standpoint? Um, or how do your, how do you guys kind of structure that innovation and are looking at different kind of marketing channels to, to go into? Do you just kind of give your team a certain amount of freedom or, or what, how do you guys structure that? Yeah. And so the process that we take is one, and this works, this applies to people that are in-house trying to do this or are people one, you got to be hitting or exceeding your goals first. There's no sense in going to experiment with something that has a low probability of success if you're not hitting your goals already. Step one. So we use our core mix to get there, which then creates space so our customer isn't breathing down our neck for six more demos that we can actually go and do some of this type of work. And so hit your goals first. I think the next part is to encourage it, create a culture that encourages experimentation and innovation. I think that's a big part. The third part is creating the space and the metrics that allow it to happen. So um, I think that is a big component of it. Uh, fourth part is having, if this is for recommendation for an internal team, it's having a leader that understands marketing at a deep enough level to have the intuition to know which things you should be doing and how long they should reasonably take to work. And then lastly, hire smart people and let them do their thing. Once you create the environment for that, let people do their thing. And so that's sort of, uh, that's the environment we're trying to build here. Yeah, that's awesome. And one question I actually have is on how you're kind of structuring or building your team. And I guess this agency type model is this account managers for each account, and then you have specialists for each tactic or kind of part of the mix. Or how do you guys kind of go about structuring that and organizing your team? Yeah, so I believe truly because I feel like I am it, that as a marketer, if you want to be one of the best marketers, you have to be both a specialist and a strategist and a generalist. And so I create content every day. I could be a social media. I'll run through all the job roles that I could hold inside of a company today. Social media manager, content director, VP of demand, CMO, revenue operations. You know what I mean? There's just like there's a lot of roles that I could reasonably do. And so I'm I'm looking for people that have a holistic understanding. about. I could do product marketing. There's a ton of stuff, right? I'm looking for people that have the holistic understanding of marketing that drives revenue is is sort of what we're looking for, which is why we have a a very strong filter in our interview process. I interview hundreds of demand marketers every month. And so that's sort of just like a nature of how we how we look at it. And so the quote unquote account manager, who's actually a director of demand generation that we hired outside of a outside of a B2B SaaS company that's typically between series B or beyond. And we hired them out of that company because that company put them on the MQL hamster wheel and wouldn't let them do any of the things that they wanted to do, which makes it very easy for us to acquire people that know that that model doesn't work. And then we try and give them the space to do those things. And so that person is is typically working with our customers, working with a director of demand gen at that company, working with a director of digital. We're not a we're not a replacement. We're not a. Uh, direct competition with that role. We work with them. We augment resources. We help them with strategy. We give them confidence to innovate. We drive innovation. That's what what we've built this company around. And then we have a paid acquisition person that's inside of like campaign builds and doing a lot of the that type of work that um, they really enjoy. That's very analytical. It's a great role for them. And it allows the, the director to focus more on strategy. And our teams are set up that way. And those those that team of two right now works on no more than four customers, which allows us to go very deep with those four in other quote unquote agency models. It would be much lower priced and that team would manage 50 customers. And that's just not how I'm interested in growing my company because you cannot drive real results 
when your mind share is spread across that amount. And so when we align on customers, pipeline and revenue outcomes and the flashlight gets put on that because we build a dashboard that everyone looks at that knows whether or not we're doing our job, then you actually have to deliver. And in order to deliver, um, it requires having a unique marketing model that actually works today. And it requires um, a deep level of attention that most of my quote unquote competitors, I don't even see them as competitors, uh, do not do. Yeah, that's super, um, super interesting. I love the kind of hearing how you're structuring that. Uh, one thing you hit on that I'm, I'm curious to understand more is, you know, you guys are hiring a lot of just a, a player marketers. And I know that this is probably one of the areas that I see a lot of companies struggle to hire in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I mean, I can't tell you this, the turnover in marketing just seems to be so high and it's hard to find someone that actually delivers results for people come in, they implement a bunch of stuff, don't get results, they leave and then they get somebody else. And um, I'm curious how you guys go about interviewing and picking like, a player marketers. How do you know you've got someone that's actually going to deliver? What does that hiring process look like for you guys? So I think you were speaking generally about marketing. So I'm going to focus the conversation specifically on demand gen for this. The number one reason that companies miss when they try and hire a, you know, director level plus demand gen employee is that they don't understand it well enough to know whether or not that, that person knows what they're doing. That's really the answer. And so then they default to what other companies have they worked at before? Like, I, oh, I recognize they used to work at Salesforce. Like, they must be good. Like, that's what people will do. And not when when you don't know what to look for you, and you look at that profile, you typically get a person that worked at a big company. And a big company is much different. Working at Salesforce in 2016 is a lot different than running demand gen at a 10 million ARR SaaS company. The person in demand gen for Salesforce could do nothing right for the next 10 years and Salesforce would still grow. Yep, that's not what happens in a $10 million ARR SaaS company. And so I think that's one of the core challenges. The second thing is that what demand gen is and how it's measured and how it's executed has changed dramatically over the past 10 years. And a lot of people are still running the HubSpot, Marketo, collect leads, run them through marketing automation, hit an MQL score, push it to sales when they don't want to talk to sales. Like that is the model that continues to get run. And until you challenge that model, then you and then it would take years to figure out the things that would work better than that model. But most of the demand marketers that I interact with that I interview haven't even challenged that model. That's a it's a clear signal just by like, what did you do at the last company? How were you measured? How did you know you were successful? I can ask like I can spend five minutes with somebody and know whether they're whether or not they're they have a shot of working here. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, those are some of the things you're talking about, I guess understanding, you know, again, like, is someone a demand gen? Like, what are their viewpoints on it? What are some of those other things you look for when making that hire? Like, what are some of the other triggers that, you know, say yes or no, or just kind of Mm -hmm. the factors that you look for in somebody? Yeah. So the first thing, just by the nature of our ICP and how we're positioned, they should work at a company that's similar to the companies that we do work for. That's part of the value prop of our company. And it's very hard to teach that. And so they need to have empathy for what it's like to work at one of those companies. They need to know what it's like in a board meeting or presenting to the CMO of that company and what stuff to report on. So that's one. The next thing that we look at is that we actually get inside of Salesforce with them. We show them a dashboard. We understand what que- I, I do this with people. I understand what questions they ask. I ask them questions. I 
ask them why do you think this trend is happening or what trend they're seeing and you see what they say it's very qualitative right and so understanding just how they think about analyzing the pipeline gives me a very good insight about whether or not they know how to do that and then we do the same a similar process inside of advertising platforms whether or not they're actually going to be running the media and building the cam- cam- campaigns is irrelevant. They need to be able to go in there and say, hey, like this is wrong. This needs to change. Why are we measuring this? Blah, 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 blah. And so I'm looking for someone that can go in there and has command of those things. Because when if you're running demand gen at a Series C SaaS company that's spending $100,000 a month and you can't go into Google and figure out what things are wrong in that account, then you shouldn't be working at any company, let alone our company in that role. And so um, that's that's part of the process too. And then lastly, we put together a, a fictional scenario and asked them to present to us as if we were the executive team of that customer. And so the fictional scenario, we're launching this product. Here's the, here's the budget. Here's our ICP, you know, put together a plan of how you would do it, how you would measure it, what resources you need da, 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 and see how they present to an executive team, how they think about strategy, how they present things. What are their ideas about trying to get 10 million ebook downloads or their ideas about trying to get buyers that actually want to buy. And so those are the things that that's, that's basically our interview process and people will fall off at each of those steps and that's how it works. Nice. I like that. So I'm hearing kind of just getting, showing them some of the inside, some of the tools, asking them questions just to really see how they think. And then along <laughs> with that kind of, present like having them do a presentation at the end to basically just give them that fictional scenario to see you know basically it's kind of a simulation of what they would be presenting to a customer the whole process is meant to simulate real work for it and it works on both sides especially Mm -hmm. with the type of work that we're in it's can this person do the work and does this person on the on the on the hiring side do i like to do this type of work and so there's some people that are looking for a demand gen role that don't want to do the things that we do. And that's fine. But so it's not like everyone just comes in here and fails our thing. Like some people will come in and say, Hey, actually, like I, part of the, my job that I like the most is I like to go over and talk to Susie, the director of sales and have coffee with her in the coffee room on break and blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's part, that's not part of our job. And so we, we tease things out on both sides because we, we need it to be a match. Yeah. So another thing I want to dive into a bit is you, you talk a lot about, you know, the the old model, the HubSpot model, getting people downloading ebooks. That's just kind of that entire approach, which for years is kind of the thing. But that, like you said, it doesn't always drive actual qualified buyers. What is it that you're seeing these days that is, you know, maybe I know there's I imagine there's a lot of depth to this, but what are some of the ways that you actually drive those sales qualified opportunities as opposed to just getting, you know, more MQLs or stuff like this? What is, what are some of the kind of like maybe paradigm shifts that you can speak at to at a higher level on how to think about that? Yeah. The number one thing in order to figure any of this stuff out is to remove the lead target as the goal. If the lead targets, the goal, you're going to have to keep doing the same stuff and the lead target when it just being clear, high volume of low intent leads, which is how a lot of marketing teams are still scored. They get past SDRs to filter through it. So, so if you remove that and you set realistic targets based on people that would convert through the funnel at a much higher rate and you lower that target, you give people a lot more flexibility to go and find things to drive people that actually want to buy stuff. So I'm just saying that for the listeners because it's not like I just like, you know, snap my fingers and figure this stuff out. I was in an environment that pr- created the conditions where I could learn these things and now I've 
over the past two years have created an environment that create conditions for me to keep building on top of it. And so one, if you're a company and you want to start to figure this out, create conditions for people to be successful. The things that work well are abundant. There's so many things that can work well. But step one is, do I understand who my target customer is? Do I have things that are valuable to them that will command their attention, which sometimes is not like, hey, come buy our product or hey, come sit on our webinar demo. And am I able to communicate those things in places where they pay attention? That's basically it, right? And then from there, if you just use that model as a base framework, then it breaks to me into organic and paid. And you should be doing both and there's different strategies in both. And so in paid, the benefit of using paid is that I don't need your email list. I, I don't need your email address. I can go in and say, I want to target CIOs at companies that are 500 to 5,000 employees in the southeastern United States. And I want to give them this specific message about something that's happening in the southeastern United States that's relevant to them. And so paid gives you the access to get everybody. Um, that you want to go after guaranteed delivery if they use that platform. On the organic side, you don't get that, right? I have about 60,000 followers on LinkedIn. A lot of the people that follow me are awesome. I, I appreciate every one of them. A lot of them are not my target customer, and I don't care about that, but some people would. And so on organic side, you, you're less targeted. Um, you don't guarantee delivery to all those people, and so you have to think about them in two separate ways. And my recommendation is to use them both in the same stream, but at the same time, and then just sort of modulate the investment and the effort in both. And so at the beginning, like what we do for customers is typically focus more on paid because you're going to guarantee delivery of buyers. You can focus lower funnel and you're going to get results faster. And then you get while you get while you're getting those results faster, you can build on organic. And as you start to build up organic, which is going to take time, then you can start to normalize those two channels in terms of effort and budget. Inside of the paid channel, Google, like people are searching, hey, like, you know, for, you know, email deliverability software. Like if somebody's searching that term and you sell email delivery deliverability software, you should be winning on that as much as possible. Right. And so like Google search is very black and white. Pick terms that indicate that people actually want to buy stuff, not email deliverability, email deliverability software, email deliverability software pricing email deliverability platform, whatever those things are. So bid on the terms that have high high intent, max that out, which would, it'll be different for every every company. I watch tons of companies waste a bunch of money on top of funnel paid search that never materializes to anything if you look at the data. And so paid search and then focus all the rest of your paid effort on paid social channels. Digi I'm talking digitally at this point, depending on your buyer, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube. Now, a lot of people listening to this are going to be like, oh, we, uh, our CEO doesn't believe in Facebook or our buyers aren't on there or, you know, medical directors don't use Instagram. They're professionals or people are looking at meme videos. We spend millions of dollars a month on Facebook and Instagram across 25 B2B companies and it works. And so your buyers are there. We span across a ton of different buyer personas. It's not like we're just going after MarTech or sales tech or FinTech. We span across a ton of different buyers and a ton of different industries and a ton of different company sizes. It works. It's what you do inside of that channel that deems whether or not it works. Why people have the assumption that Facebook doesn't work is because they take their gated ebook play from LinkedIn and then run it on Facebook and then get shitty Gmails 
and then and spend two thousand dollars and complain that it didn't work and it's the strategy that's wrong and potentially the targeting but not the channel and so we run customer stories animations about the product blogs about an industry study that highlights a pain point that our product solves like put content in the channel right you could do thought leadership in that channel too a similar strategy could be used on LinkedIn. The way that we use LinkedIn and Facebook differently is that Facebook is used for scale. Facebook is used for the quality of their algorithm that is incredible in terms of, I, I, would, I call it propri Facebook's proprietary intent data. Like Facebook knows whether or not someone's on your, you know, browsing your competitor's website when they're interested in buying. And then Facebook will put your ad in front of that person right after they get off your competitor's site. That's because Facebook's pixel is on every site. People don't recognize how sophisticated that algorithm is. Um, and so we use it for those couple of reasons, for, for scale, it's lower cost, and the algorithm is incredible. And frankly, just more people, more B2B buyers use those two platforms combined than LinkedIn. The reach is just way better. Way better. And then on the LinkedIn side, we use it for the quality of the targeting. We go higher seniority level. We do not use the expansion algorithms or all the other things that LinkedIn turns on by default to help you waste money. And we go after very specific, narrow things, typically lower funnel, but we're experimenting right now with more thought leadership, like what you would see from me on LinkedIn, which I believe will be very successful if measured appropriately. And so looking at those types of ways on paid. Now, if we transition to organic, the organic strategy is what you see us doing right now. If you just look at what my company does, you would have the playbook because if we knew of something that was working better, we'd be doing it ourselves. And so when we think about organic, like my, my strategy over the past 24 months since I started this company was to model the behavior that I believe all of our customers should do. That's it. And so when I tell our customers that they shouldn't, they should stop wasting money on trade shows and do the events that I talk about, I do those events. I've done them. I've, I know how to measure them. I know how much better they work. Like I've done them. When I tell all of my customers to start a podcast and some, some of them don't, I do a podcast. I record three episodes a week and they tell me that their CEO doesn't have enough time. And I say, then you got to figure out what your priorities are. Like, I believe that it's one of the most important, it doesn't have to be the CEO. I'm not calling anybody out here. It's your subject matter expert that your buyers want to listen to. Um, and so that could be your SDR in some companies if you sell to SDRs or SDR managers. When we talk about LinkedIn organic, I put out LinkedIn content almost every day, high quality LinkedIn content every day. I've been doing it for two years. And so all of the things on the on the organic marketing side is just look at the things that we're we're doing, and then you could replicate that for your business. That's incredible. I feel like you just gave us a uh, 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 an entire playbook there. <laughs> so um, absolutely amazing, just seeing I guess the sophistication of this, and and I love what you were saying on the 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 Facebook and the Instagram thing because I think I've fallen into that belief and uh, assumed like a lot of people are it's just not there. But I think what you're saying is. The buyers are there. You can get traction. You guys have the proof, but most people are just approaching those platforms incorrectly. Um, is that kind of what's leading to most people failing on Facebook or Instagram? They fail with either the wrong strategy or they never try and they just have opinions about whether or not it works that come from the, the excuses that I put forward earlier, right? Like those are the two, the two reasons. Like if you actually were thoughtful and you thought about the idea that this channel might be used to communicate with your potential customers versus trying to force them into some lead funnel so you can cold call them, you would do things a lot differently. 
And that's what we've been doing for five years. Like I wasn't, uh, when I started figuring this out, the CEO of the company told me that I was working for emergency medicine physicians will never buy our product through Facebook. Emergency room physicians don't use Facebook. ER nurses don't use Instagram. Like I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> like, and then, and then we started doing it. And my job there like was not to drive a high volume of leads. My job was to drive more people in the market at the right accounts to want to buy the product and talk to our sales rep. And so my strategy was very different than what most companies use today. And when I started to look not just at the number of leads or the amount of engagement or how many cold calls we made or whatever, and I started to look at when we start doing this and we deliver information to these people and they actually consume it, wow, like now more people come inbound and they ask to talk to our sales rep. And then I track that and I'm like, wow, like those people become customers at 10% versus our lead gen ads for this ebook that are becoming customers at 0.05%. Wow, we're winning 200x better win rates by just doing this thing differently. Yeah, we have less leads, but it actually makes our sales team way more efficient too. We wouldn't need as many sales reps if we were this efficient. Oh, and it's much more scalable than our cold calling model to do demos for people that aren't interested or that are cold. Like, and that's how I started to figure all of these different things out. And then ultimately, I looked at it at customer acquisition cost, and I compared it to our outbound channel. And the reason that I did that is because I knew how much it was working, and I was asking for millions of dollars in more budget, and the company was considering expanding the sales team from 40 to 60 people. And I just made the case that we should take that the couple million dollars that we could go in either direction with. And I think that we should spend it here and make all of our 40 sales reps that are currently here a lot more productive versus having 20 more that are less productive. And that was the, that was the thought process around how I got here. And then I've been building on that model for the past five or six years. Nice. That's incredible. Um, so another area, the thing I want to hit on a bit is I, I find it really interesting that, I mean, refined labs, you guys are just about two years old right now. And like I said, you've got 25 customers, your pricing on your website, like I saw, starts at 15,000 per customer. So you guys have uh, really come out of the gate swinging and grown very quickly. And I'm curious, maybe what did that journey look like, um, I guess, from, you know, the last company that you left to actually um, launching Refine Lab, getting those first few customers and hitting the scale that you guys have had? I mean, it seems like you guys have come a, a long way in just two years. Yeah. So first off, I interact with the companies that have been with us for more than a year and I look inside of their Salesforce data and their customer acquisition costs and their return on ad spend and our pricing should be dramatically higher. So that's probably going to happen soon. <laughs> and so just based on pure results, when you get aligned with customer value, not on delivery on a task, and you understand that these companies are getting 10x you know, revenue valuations or more on the revenue that's being created through these programs, it starts to you start to make a case that, wow, you should be paying us a lot more than this. And so that's something that we've been thinking about now that we have customers that have had that level of, of time in order to see the impact here. And so when we thought about building this company, one, like, I'm a marketing strategist, right? And so when you are a marketing strategist, the number one thing is, who are we selling to? And how are we different? And I don't think companies at the beginning think about those two things because this I don't see segmentation models nearly as sophisticated as how we segment. 
I literally just told a B2B SaaS company that wanted to spend $150,000 a month on ads. I just told them 20 minutes ago before we hopped on this podcast and they were not the right fit for us. And so like, despite how like that we work with B2B SaaS companies, we don't work with everybody. We have a very detailed level of segmentation, which then allows us to drive our product and our messaging and everything that's very specific to this specific ICP. And so for the first six months, it was figuring out who that is. That's a trial and error process. And so over time, we've been able to see these are the things that we know don't fit our model or different things. The, the annual contract value, the total addressable market, the primary market that they're selling into, how big their marketing team is, what skills those marketing teams have, the um, philosophical alignment with the CMO and the CEO about what we're trying to do. Um, there's, it's even like getting into psychographics, not only firmographics. And so we consider all of those different things in our level of segmentation to define our ICP, which then drives the right product, but more importantly, long-term retention and happy customers because the product's built for them. So that's segmentation was a big part of it. And then working on building a product that was differentiated, right? And so by design, the way that I figured this stuff out made it differentiated on its own. Like it's very clear. And now as I continue to move down this track and understand more as more companies come in from agencies that we're working with and spending a bunch of money, I understand how much more differentiated we are. And so really figuring out what those components are that drive that. And then lastly, doing marketing well. It amazes me how many marketing quote unquote, marketing agencies don't know how to market themselves, right? <laughs> And so doing marketing well is a huge one. And, and part of doing marketing well was potentially taking a different path than what a lot of people told me to take, right? And so when we had two customers and it was just me, people told me that I should hire a sales team to start selling stuff for me. And given my background in marketing, I was like, I feel like we could just do this through marketing, right? Like I don't need an outbound motion to this day. To this day, we've never sent one cold email and we've never made one outbound cold call to try and get a customer because what we sell is unique and that is a losing game. And so the belief across all of this and the reason that you're seeing the growth that we're seeing right now in the market and the momentum that's building is that brand always outpaces sales. Brand will always beat sales long-term when executed properly. It scales better. It's more impactful. It's more customer-centric. It's more aligned with how buyers buy today. It's more aligned with how buyers discover things today. It facilitates word of mouth in a way that sales can't. And I'm not. this is not a knock on sales. It's a, it's, a, it's a message to companies to think about, if you're an early stage company, to think about maybe there's a different way to build the initial part of my company, of my go-to-market strategy. And for a larger company, it's something to think about. Maybe I need to take a step back and rethink how my budgets are balanced in order to cater to how much different a B2B buyer is today than they were 10 years ago. And those were the, the core pillars that we operate on. And we have a small marketing team and no sales team and continue to scale very good because we attract the exact ICP customer that we want. And they want to work with us because we're uniquely differentiated. And that's why our win rates are so high and why we're able to grow. And why, frankly, why we'll be able to continue to push up pricing in our model based on the results that we generate for them. And so um, that's a, a little bit of the story and my thought process around how we got here so far. Nice. That's incredible to hear. I love that. Oh, and there was one thing actually <laughs> that I wanted to note too. It, I kind of went to it on the 
I kind of went to it on like not going in the sales route, but it was the core thesis is to forget all of the things that are not that impactful and focus on driving in the most higher ROI activities. Like you mentioned, LinkedIn DM five years ago, it was the idea that we have not spent a second thinking about SEO. We have not spent a second thinking about email marketing. We focus on LinkedIn podcast and a community. And those are the three things that we do and we do them very well. And we had an event strategy pre COVID. Um, It's now a virtual event strategy and influencer marketing. Like those were the things that we put together. And I think a lot of companies, because they get so spread out about, oh, we need to do SEO. We need to do, you know, whatever those content syndication, they spread out their budget and their mind share. And they actually don't do the best opportunities well because they don't recognize them and they don't go deep enough to know how well they can work. And so that's another take home too. And at some point, LinkedIn will be in a place where it's not that not that effective anymore. I don't know when that time's going to happen. I'm going to get the most out of it while it's still really great. But at some point, like maybe a lot of people aren't on LinkedIn. Maybe the reach is so far down that not a lot of people see my content. And when that happens, I don't care. I just take the impact that's already been created. And by that time, I'm going to have three or four other channels that are working and we forget LinkedIn and we go focus on the next one. Yeah, I love that mindset. And so a question I would have for you is if you say you're talking to one of your ideal customer personas, they hitting some traction here, they're ready to scale their leads, really ready to grow. You know, what advice do you have for someone who is hitting that stage? They're ready to to hit that hyper growth, turn up demand gen. What's the typical things that you're advising a customer or someone you're talking to at that initial stages? It's sort of interesting because I think the the hyper growth stage is oversold. And I think that demand gen's impact on that is also oversold. Yes, we drive, you know, accelerated pipeline and revenue for customers at a lower cost. Like that's what we do. Um, but the idea that you just like turn on demand gen and your you know pipeline goes straight up, which a lot of early stage companies believe, I, we tend to work with more mature companies that are philosophically aligned for that reason because this is not magic. You know what I mean? And so the core things are like. If you turn on demand gen and our job is to make growth go faster, but you need to have growth at the beginning, right? And so there should be a lot of signals already that people are accepting the product in the market. You should have more inbound just purely based on the word of mouth of existing customers. And then you're trying to make that go faster. And so those are some of the signals that we look at is the, do you have a, do you have a funnel through demos of ICP buyers that are already coming there to buy already? Are they converting through the funnel? Do they become customers? Like that is one thing that I look at because if there's no, no flow there, I can't make the flow go faster. We're not here to we're not here to start that flow. We're here to make that flow go a lot faster and more efficient. And so those are some of the things that I look at. But perhaps I did, you know, took your question in a different way and you want to try and ask it a different way. I like that. I think what you're saying there is um, just to understand that it you got there's no magic here. You have the demand gen. You can't just suddenly turn it up. But it's it's really it's accelerating the flow. But it's not like you can just skyrocket it overnight. It's it's a process like anything else is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, I mean, it, it because people have historically thought about demand gen as lead gen. And I'll make the distinction for people because I think it, it will help a lot of people. But because they've historically thought about it as lead gen, like you can go ahead and turn on your performance marketing lead gen for your B2B SaaS company tomorrow and light up your dashboard with a bunch of leads. I could do that for any one of our customers tomorrow and get them a thousand leads. It's not hard to do that stuff. The challenge is that out of those thousand, perhaps one of them will become a customer. Maybe. 
and that wastes a ton of a ton of your sales team's time and you lose a ton of credibility with your sales team and you waste a lot of money in the process, which is why we don't do those things. And so when you think about the idea of lead gen, you can you can light up dashboards straight away, which is why people think that you just like hire us and all of a sudden you magically become a unicorn. That's not what happens. And other agencies will be able to get customers for three to six months by doing that until they see all of the effect that none of that really converts to pipeline, which is why you see this like wash, rinse, repeat on agency models and pe- customers should vet that before. And, but when we break down the idea between lead gen and demand gen, demand gen is creating the desire to buy for people that can buy your stuff. And you don't create the desire to buy something like that especially a complex multi-stakeholder product that requires implementation, requires a significant pain point in order to go and be the champion and go and get that implemented in your company, potentially displace a different technology or the status quo. Somebody has to really have a desire to buy that product and make a change in order to do that. And that doesn't happen overnight. And so that's why demand gen takes longer, but you build more momentum. That's why our company grows you know, faster now at a higher at a higher revenue rate than we did at the beginning is because we have momentum we have the narrative we those things are happening now and so i think when you switch your mind you one you have to switch your mindset two you need to switch your metrics the mindset needs to change to i need to help people understand the reasons why they might want to consider making a change or as andy raskin would say playing a different game right so how do we help someone understand that they need to be playing a different game um, and when you change your mindset to that, then it helps you change your metrics because, you know, collecting email addresses on LinkedIn eBooks does not do anything in someone's desire to change. Does that very little. And if you looked, I know a lot of people are gonna be like, oh, well, they downloaded the eBook and they read it and that's how they're going to get it. I would highly encourage you to check the metrics. I know that you don't track this. Check the metrics on how many people actually read that book and you would be awfully surprised. It's less than it's less than ten percent of people that actually fill out the form on a LinkedIn ad will actually even have a chance to consume that, and if they even consume it, they'll skim through it and leave, and it won't make any impact. And so, that's something for people to think about in terms of like I focus on the consumption of the information, not whether or not they gave me their email address. Did they watch the full five minute video, and did that five minute video make some type of impact on them where they feel more affinity? to me and my company, where they understand something that they didn't know, where they could take something away and go and try that at their company and have success, which then builds affinity and credibility for me. Those are the things that I think about when I think about creating demand for something. And yeah, I would be happy to answer a follow up because I don't talk about this that much. And I probably should do it more often. Yeah, it's um, that's super fascinating, I guess, to yeah, just kind of hear that perspective there. And, and I think it's what you're saying about the demand gen versus the lead gen, I think, is a big distinction where I think everyone, once they lead, like you're saying, it's you want people that actually want to buy. So, um, yeah, any other kind of thoughts on that whole entire kind of frame? It's about properly defining what a lead is inside of your company. And so for a lead, for me, it's an ICB customer that asks to talk to your sales rep in whatever medium. They could do inbound phone call, re- demo request form, you know, chat to a book, a demo, whatever, whatever those things are, but they need to ask to talk to the sales rep in order for them to be considered a lead in my view. And then once you change that definition, it allows you to sort of change how you do marketing. Yeah. I love that. Um, well, as we're wrapping up here, one of the questions I always like to kind of finish out on is if you could go back five to 10 years and say your entrepreneurial and demand gen career, what advice would you give your younger self? 
I get this question a lot, and honestly, I don't have a I don't have a great answer because I feel like I feel like the things happened the way that they should have happened is sort of how I feel it. And and when people really look back, and when I look back, there's a ton of things that I did that didn't make sense, but it was part of my intuition. And now they all start to come together, right? Like I spent time in in product management, which now gives me a huge command of how to understand customers and segment and message and be agile. I spent time in lean manufacturing, which I then take a lot of those principles and think about them and how to generate revenue and be lean and be the most efficient way to get revenue. I spent time building e-commerce stores, which then helped me do advertising for enterprise B2B sales-led motions in a different way than how every company does. And so I feel like everything sort of happens for a reason. I don't have a, I don't have a ton of advice for what I would say. I think it's just about like following the things that you're, that you're passionate about. I think uh, if I'm looking like truly 10 years ago, um, and I think a lot of people that are, that are older would think this to be true when they were this age, about 20 and I think people that are 20 could get a lot of value in changing their perspective based on what I learned is that I did a lot of things when I was 20 based on what I thought I was supposed to do, not what I wanted to do. And so I think that might have given me, you know, I don't regret anything because it got me to here, but I think it could have maybe gotten me to a different place in a different way if I followed more about what I wanted to do versus listening to what society told me I should do. Yeah, I love that. That is sage advice there. Well, Chris, this has been absolutely amazing. I appreciate you taking the time to hop on here. Um, if for anyone on the show, you know, where do they can they go to find more about you online? Yeah, so LinkedIn is a great spot. I post content in there every day. LinkedIn, Chris Walker, and also we publish our own podcast called the State of Demand Gen Podcast. And so, if you like some of the insights and the playbooks on here, we get a lot more tactical there. Tons of marketers have been giving us great feedback about the things that they've been implementing and doing about how they tried something and it worked and they got a promotion or that their company's doing better or that they started their own company or all those different things make me happy. And so uh, those are probably the two best places to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to come on here. Chris. Amazing interview and uh, it's great talking. Thanks. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.